Hello, welcome to The Hot Seat. I'm Martin Rogers, here with Dr Jill Stewart to discuss the recent Virgin Galactic tragedy. Welcome, Jill. Thanks for having me. So, briefly, what happened and what have we learnt from the recent events? So, last Friday, Virgin Galactic was running one of their test flights and it crashed. Uh, Spaceship 2 crashed in the Mojave Desert. One pilot was killed, the other managed to eject but suffered serious injuries. What it looks like right now, it sounds like it was something to do with what we call the feathering device, which is meant to help the plane on its the, the space plane on its descent back to Earth. Um, initially, there were some reports that it might have had something to do with the fuel, which I think would have been a bit more controversial because the fuel itself has been cited as being a potential safety risk. But it looks like now it was this feathering device that caused that, that caused the crash. Having said that, the uh, the full report is meant to take about a year to complete, so we won't have answers for quite a while. So what are the implications for the, this project specifically, but also commercial and non-commercial space flight more generally? Well, it's going to be tough to say what exactly this is going to mean for Virgin Galactic. Um, at first, there were a lot of people who, who said that the, it looked like this was going to be the end of them. Having said that, since then, Richard Branson has come out, the, the head of Virgin um, group more generally saying very specifically that they want to continue. It looks like they have another prototype that's going to be flight ready in about six months and they seem determined at this point to carry on. And um, I've read that they've had some, about 20 people pull out and ask for refunds of the more than 700 that have bought tickets. But plenty of people seem to still be interested in, in, in going up if they do manage to make the project viable. Um, having said that, I think the main implication is that it's going to be delayed. Um, the project has long been delayed. It was originally it started in 2008, and they thought they would be flying by 2009. That's been delayed. Um, now I think this is going to push, push commercial space flight tourism uh, back even further. Um, having said that, uh, there are other companies like SpaceX that are working on commercial um, flight capabilities for NASA in order to supply the International Space Station. They're hoping to have something ready by 2018, and I think that that seems like a fairly realistic timeline. The only other thing that I would mention is that a lot of people don't realize that space tourism has actually been around for a long time. Uh, since 2001, the company Space Adventures has been taking space tourists to the International Space Station. $10 million a ticket, and only seven people have gone. So what we're talking about here is this new model of space tourism, which is the suborbital space flight. So you go up for four to five minutes of weightlessness, you don't actually enter into orbit, and at $250,000 it's still very expensive, but it's, it's much cheaper than the, the, the other version, the Space Adventures version. So. Um, yeah, so we're sort of in the process of reevaluating this this suborbital space tourism. Are there any legal implications arising both for orbital and suborbital spaceflight? Well, the suborbital space plans are interesting. So, according to the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, the first treaty that was established to govern outer space, um, outer space is neutral territory. Airspace is not. It's, it's sovereign territory. So the state underneath your air, uh, uh, an airspace has governance 
responsibilities for that. But outer space is neutral territory. The thing is, it never defined where airspace ends and outer space begins. Now, for decades, it didn't really matter because airplanes didn't fly high enough and um, space objects were never low enough. But objects such as um, these Virgin Galactic planes cross over into that what could in theory be that boundary. So it's forced us to start talking about how we define outer space. It wouldn't necessarily be a spatial delimitation. So right now we roughly kind of say it's about 62 miles up. Um, NASA defines anybody who's been above 50 miles to be an astronaut. Uh, so it could be that it would be like a physical boundary, but other people say that we should use what's called a functionalist definition. So, for example, these space planes would be governed by aviation law because their primary purpose is tourism and because they take off and land from the same country. Um, but it's, it is sort of throwing up these, these issues again. I think until the technology really pushes the international community to have to make a decision about this. It'll, it, we won't sort of settle on a definition, but it's becoming more and more pressing. So given the recent explosion of the payload bound for the International Space Station just before the Virgin Galactic incident, has this been a bad couple of weeks for commercial space activity? It certainly feels like it's been a bad week for space. It is unfortunate to have two explosions. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily to do with commercialization. Governments have certainly had plenty of their own mishaps with, with space activities. So it's just the fact that space is difficult. We're dealing with rocket fuel. We're dealing with trying to escape the Earth's gravity, and, and that's tough. So, yeah, I don't think it's a commercial issue, but it, it has been a bit of a rough week for space. Thank you very much, Dr. Jill. You're off the hot seat. Thank you.